Kevin Kramer. And, of course, this is Congressman Kevin Kramer, soon to be Senator Kevin Kramer. Just um, when does that kick in, I guess? I know it's 2019, but uh, when does that officially kick in? Well, it's interesting, Jason. So I've already got an ID that says United States Senator, and it says through uh, 2024, I guess, and the... uh, I think they, they refer to you now as senator-elect when you're in Washington, although I am still a congressman, so when I'm, you know, when I'm on the House side of the Capitol, uh, whether it's for votes or, or uh, you know, meeting or something, then I'm congressman, and when I'm over on the Senate side of the Capitol for orientation or in you know, a, a staffing role, for example, I already have a, a transition office in, in the Senate side of the, the uh, Capitol complex, I have it staffed, uh, and so that transition office is the office of Senator-elect Kevin Kramer. So the way to keep it really simple is the way I've always liked it, and that is, I'm Kevin. <laughs> yeah, of course, I, I've known you for quite a long time, where that's, I've known you back when you were Kevin, and Mr. Kramer, and Public Service Commissioner, and uh, tourism, Kevin, too. Kevin works for all of them. You were tourism for a while, weren't you? The best job in the world, the most fun I've ever had at work, was as North Dakota's tourism director. Oh, I could imagine. That's when uh, North Dakota was a blank spot on uh, America's consciousness. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, I loved it. Well, and thank you for reminding me, Senate-elect, because that, that would be the proper term. But then again, you are a U.S. congressman, so we'll just we'll maybe interchange him here. Um, sure. we, we did want to... Um, ask you eventually about the transition kind of you know you, you kind of went over it briefly but just kind of how that that well let's start with that the transitioning you know you're going from the house to the senate you know we just had a whole bunch of uh, uh, new elections that happened elections some positions that got filled what happens over the next six months during the transitional part from for you personally but also for industry yeah, boy, it's a really good question because it's it's an important thing that happens. The Senate transition is very different than the House does. The, the 435 members of the House of Representatives uh, right now are leaving their offices. In fact, my office has to be um, completely clear by, uh, I think it's November 28th, so next week. Um, some members are already leaving their offices. And that what happens is that they move into cubicles in the basement of, uh, of a couple of the office buildings while the maintenance staff prepares the offices for the next member, and the next member moves in basically a, a day or two before they are sworn in, which is January 3rd. The Senate is different. The Senate, um, once, you're, once you're certified, um, and that you know, happened last week for me, and, and uh, really actually before that, but once once it's clear, you go to orientation, and then um, we get a transition office that will serve as our office, not only during the transition to the Senate, but for the first three or four months of service in the Senate, because the senators don't leave their offices until their last day as a senator. So January 2nd, January 3rd, is when the uh, retiring senators will leave their offices, and then they don't open up until then. And then, of course, the maintenance crews go in and they paint and, and clean and do whatever else needs to be done for maintenance purposes. And then there's a sort of a chain reaction. 
And that means people move into the offices that are available. Just this is an example that sort of walked through it. Warren Hatch, who is like, you know, the, the president or chairman of the Senate, he's I think the second longest serving senator. He's been in his office a long time, which means he's got a very good, uh, prestigious office probably with a lot of room and a nice view and probably a couple of working fireplaces, who knows. But um, his office will be you know, a prize for somebody. And when somebody goes to the office, that opens up their office and, and on down the line. So it takes a while for senators, new senators, to get into their permanent offices. So we, we operate in a very nice uh, temporary office in the basement of the Dirksen building is where my office will be. Uh, interestingly, I've already voted for the leadership team. We did that last week as a, as a caucus for next year's conference or next year's uh, Congress. Uh, I've already, you know, sat through several policy luncheons with uh, Republican members of the Senate. I've had, you know, I've had my say on a couple of things, and uh, I've gotten to know my colleagues. Uh, so, so really, the transition has already begun in earnest. I also have two full-time Senate staffers that are on board. Um, my chief of staff, Mark Duman, who's my chief of staff in the House, is also going to be my chief of staff in the Senate. He's already transitioned, so he's already a an employee of the Senate in the office of the, of the senator-elect from North Dakota. The same with um, Rachel Beaney, who was my scheduler and office manager. She will do the same work for me. She's going to be administrative director, actually, of the Senate. She's already on full-time as a Senate staffer in the office of Senator-elect Kramer. And so it's, it's a very different process than the House is. Uh, the, the, uh, the Senate just takes its time, as we know. <laughs> Yeah, I'd imagine you'd have quite an advantage going from the House to the Senate as opposed to somebody, you know, just getting elected from, say, state government. I mean, not only do your movers have less to move from office to right. office, but uh, you're bringing a lot of those those contacts with you. Um, you know, have you thought about that, you know, that you're going to have a pretty good advantage over a lot of the other senators? You know, Jason, it's a really good point and a good observation, and it is a tremendous advantage for a number of reasons, not the least of which is years of service in the House counts toward your seniority in the Senate. To put a more uh, clear illustration on that, um, the two, there are, let's see, three, four House members that were elected to the Senate. So there are eight freshmen, four of us serve in the House. I have seniority over two of them, but Marcia Blackburn from Tennessee has been in the House 16 years, so she has the most seniority. I have second most seniority. But here's what's really interesting. Of the other four, one's in a, a former Attorney General, actually the Attorney General of Missouri, Josh Hawley. He comes in with no seniority. Uh, Mike Braun, a businessman from Indiana, comes in with no seniority. Um, and then we have two governors, Rick Scott, who has, I think, eight years of seniority uh, as a governor, because gubernatorial service does count, but not until after um, congressional seniority. So Rick Scott will come in behind me in seniority, and after him will be Mitt Romney, who doesn't have uh, quite eight years of service as governor, but he was governor of Massachusetts, and so he comes in with the fourth most seniority. So, so yes, service in the House matters there. The other real advantage is bringing the talent with me. Um, while not every member of my House staff may, will, will likely work for me, well, we know not everyone will in the Senate, but um, I think most of them are applying for jobs in the Senate. That, that they're, most of them are very talented, and I'm honored that they work for me. I think they're a big reason why I've been successful, and I uh, have a running head start by having people who are both from North Dakota and familiar with North Dakota, as well as familiar with Congress and the issues. Um, but you have 
45 to 50 employees in the Senate, whereas in the House you have about 15 employees. So it's you know three times as many people. Uh, it's a lot more to manage, but you also get a lot more very specific expertise. But the other advantage, Jason, that you know might be lost on some people, but it's just knowing your way around the buildings. And it's a very big complex. It's uh, it's a very uh, you know it's, it's a very old complex, starting with the oldest part of the, the Capitol, of course, and that's got uh, basements and sub-basements and, and all these uh, nooks and crannies and routes of how to get around safely, and, and uh, so uh, there's a lot of advantages, no question about it, to, to knowing your way around the building, knowing your way around the town, and frankly, knowing the people. So let's uh, talk about a few things going on here that... Um happen in the world of energy, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, the first one is the uh, Keystone XL pipeline. I guess I thought that was a done deal, and then all of a sudden I saw, you know, that the courts denied it or something like that. Do you know what's going yeah. on up there with the Keystone? Sure. So it's a very, you know, it's a pretty problematic setback, although the Keystone XL pipeline has had so many starts and starts and stops and stops and starts and stops and pits and stops. <laughs> you know, it's almost become... Um, to be expected, and uh, it's, uh, but it is unfortunate. So this most recent stoppage by the judge, this federal judge in Montana, I believe it was, in the Ninth Circuit, of course, um, it has to do with the, that the president didn't um, adequately consider climate change or something in, in the, oh, the no. uh, permit of the Keystone XL pipeline. The irony of that, of course, is that... <laughs> If you're going to consider climate change, if you're supposed to consider climate change, I don't believe that you have to consider climate change. Um, the the, uh, the Supreme Court in the endangerment finding said that that you could, that the EPA can uh, consider uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but it didn't require them to in certain things. But, but with regard to the presidential permit, he only has to determine whether it's in the country's best interest or it's in the interest of the nation. And... Um, the reality is, is that if you're worried about emissions, the Keystone XL pipeline has the least emissions of any way to transport uh, crude oil, particularly from the uh, oil sands of Alberta, because the other two ways, train, railing, and of course, rail is like twice as much, if not more, emission, uses emissions, uh, twice as many emissions as does a, uh, as a does a pipeline. And of course, as we know, trucks are like two and a half or three times more in terms of the emissions versus a pipeline. So if you're concerned about greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, you ought to be supportive of the Keystone Pipeline. But clearly this judge wasn't thinking about what about science or probably even the Constitution or the law, but rather he's an activist judge from the Ninth Circuit, mm. which is where there are lots of them. So, okay, that's that's unusual. You don't have a judge think of the big picture. I mean, I, 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 I always think of um, the science behind how it's actually less environmental to use paper than plastic bags right. because of the transportation <laughs> and the cutting of the trees and yeah. everything like that. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. uh, okay, yeah. well, that's it's it sounds like there's just more uh, kangaroo court stuff going on, huh? Well, that's the way it looks to me, Jason. Of course, the, the, the company will have to decide whether it wants to appeal to the Ninth Circuit or whether they'll have a hearing or whether, you know, the, the, it's actually the, the uh, federal government itself that's being stopped. So the president could decide to appeal it or they can do a deeper dive into the uh, environmental impact statement and the EAS or whatever all is involved yeah. in, uh, in that process consider or in the uh, in that uh, environmental process, 
you know, more put more consideration in for climate change. But if they do that, what's going to happen is it's going to cost a lot more money. It's going to take a lot longer. But they will prove that, in fact, it is in the best interest of the climate to uh, build the Keystone XL pipeline rather than move this oil. Just just imagine this, Jason. That that oil is going to find its way to a market. That's how markets work. Products that are in demand, wherever they are in the world, will find their way to the market. So rather than moving in a safe, secure, environmentally friendly pipeline through the United States to the, the Gulf Coast, the Gulf Coast, where it'll be refined, it'll find its way to a, a, a train via a truck, which will probably the train will take it across the country of Canada, one way or the other, and to a port somewhere, and it'll get on a big barge or ship, and it'll and then they'll ship it down, you know, around the southern coast, maybe through the Panama Canal and to the uh, to the Gulf Coast, so for refining. Now I don't know how in the world that is better for the environment or for climate than moving it to a safe, clean pipeline, but um, they'll no doubt, if they, if they take the process the judge is saying and put more consideration for climate change, they'll come to the conclusion that it's better for the climate, and by the way, it's just going to cost a lot more money and uh, take a lot longer. How about the new EPA director? Uh, I, I name the gentleman escapes me, replace Scott Pruitt. Uh, do, do you know him at, at all? Have you met him? I, I do. It's Andrew Wheeler. He's very good. Um, Andrew uh, has a, a great background in energy and is a, a smart person. Um, he's, I, would su- I would submit to you that he's every bit as uh, right as um, Scott Pruitt is. Uh, he's got similar philosophy, I, I believe. I think he's, he's a solid um, thinker. Uh, he, he's probably got a little bit, uh, he's probably a little more diligent than Scott Pruitt was in the job. Uh, Andrew's, uh, he's always going to do the right thing as he sees it, and I think he generally sees the right thing. Uh, he's, he's got good temperament for the job. He's got good relationships on Capitol Hill. Uh, I, I think he's been a, a very good, he's a good deputy. He's, he's been a good interim uh, administrator. Um, and I'm glad that he's been, that he's received a nod from the president. And if I'm in a position at some point uh, to confirm him, I'll look forward to the opportunity to inquire further and to uh, interview him and, and hopefully make a decision to, his, to, to get him appointed full-time. That's that's true. I should point out yet yeah, it does still have to go through an appointment. Some of the headlines makes it seem like he's already um, the new EPA director, and but well, he is. He's he's, he's the interim, and so he just needs appointment. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, right. I just I wanted to, one more question for you involving steel tariffs. Um, there, it's starting to impact the energy industry a little bit now. At least I'm hearing rumblings sure. of it through the pipelines. You know, and even even construction, you'll hear some of the guys talk about the price of nails and things like that. My my point is, I think in this next 2019, um, you're you're going to hear a little bit more about the the impact of the steel tariffs. Are you hearing anything or an update on on these steel tariffs? Because uh, I'm starting to hear a little rumbling myself. Well, there's no question, Jason, that as time goes on, you're going to see a greater, uh, more consequential impact. Um, you know, as m- new Things are manufactured as steel is finds its you know its markets. Um, there's no question that the the price impact is is likely to go up. Uh, on the other hand, you're also seeing more steel plants in the United States uh, being ramped up. You're seeing uh, you know some of the old plants that have been that have been mothballed that are now being restored restored to active service. And so some of what the president wants to accomplish is actually 
happening. Now, the, the other factor is that, that all of these are moving parts. It's, you know, while none of this happens in a vacuum, and a person might say, well, you know, the, uh, the Section 232 tariffs that deal with national defense are one thing, the 301 tariffs are another thing, and NAFTA is a different thing, and, you know, the bilateral with the European Union is another thing. And while all of that is technically true, I think we all know that everything's a negotiation and all of these moving parts, one has an impact on the other. And as we see more and more trade deals getting closer to being finished or seeing some that have been finished, I do expect that... Um, you know, we'll still see a little bit of uh, price increase. We'll probably still see some of these tariffs remain in place until such time as our president feels like we're getting a you know a decent reciprocal deal you know, globally. Um, but I also expect that there to be some relief as we finish off some of these trade deals. Uh, you, as you probably know, just as you're hearing more and more on the ground there, and I am as well from from energy companies and others who use steel manufacturers of all types. We're also, um, you know, we're also seeing that more and more business organizations are trying to put more pressure on the president to not issue the steel tariffs or to lift the steel tariffs, particularly on our on our allies, whether it's the European Union or Canada and Mexico as part of the U.S.-Mexico-Canadian agreement. Um, and and while I understand their sentiment, and I certainly appreciate it and, and agree with it to, to a great degree, I also feel like, you know, when you publicly come out pushing for your president to do something in a particular negotiation, you weaken his hand. And I, I just shouldn't see us stand with the president um, more in lockstep, if you will, uh, and in the negotiation with other countries, particularly with China, so that they are, you know, they're reading our newspapers, they're watching our media, and they're going, hey, look at that, the American business people, the American, you know, even the Republican Party members of Congress are, are on our side, not on the United States side. We can play tougher. We don't need to cave to this guy. We don't need to negotiate with him. We've got half of the country, of his country on our side. I, I think that's a problem, and I'd like to see our business community uh, be a little more supportive and, uh, and helped the president negotiate a better deal rather than tie his hands. Well, I, I think if you're starting to see a little bit of the steel industry in, in the United States coming back, then, you know, you're seeing that balancing happen at least. Um, right. Yeah, right. I mean, there is that. I, I hadn't heard that till right now, so I didn't realize that. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's like fine-tuning fine in chemistry what's going on. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, the one thing we're not going to ever roll back is we're not going to – we're not going to – roll back from a global economy. We are a global economy. We want to sell to other countries. While the United States has the largest economy in the world, we do have 20% of the economic productivity of the world uh, in the consumption of the world. We're only 5% of the population. And you know, we need the rest of the world to produce things as well because we're also major consumers at 20%. And so striking that global balance is important. And while we'd like to see more steel jobs and more manufacturing jobs, we also have to remember that um, the, the vast majority of the population lives somewhere other than the United States. Uh, but this president understands leverage, and he knows we have a lot on these countries that have big trade imbalances with us, that have big trade surpluses with us. And, um, you know, he just expects a little bit better treatment, a little bit more reciprocal trade. And I think we're starting, to, we're starting to get that. We're starting to see some of that. But I don't think weakening his hand in the middle of a negotiation is a particularly good strategy on the part of many of the American business people and, uh, and members of Congress. Senator-elect, 
current U.S. Congressman Kevin Kramer. Thank you much, and uh, happy holidays to you and your family. Jason, same to you. Thanks for the opportunity. Let's stay in touch uh, as things are going on. If I hear things, I'll let you know. If you have questions, please feel free to contact me. This is the most valuable part of my job is staying in touch with the people that I represent and, and I particularly, particularly like staying in touch with the energy community depending on what um, uh, what committee assignments I get. Uh, I'm seeking a position on the Environment and Public Works Committee, which I think would be a very good compliment to Senator Hoban's Energy and Natural Resources Committee assignment. So we'd have the, the regulatory front as well as the energy and, and investment front uh, pretty well covered for the uh, for the energy sector of North Dakota, and has a lot of agricultural ramifications as well. So uh, let's stay in touch because it's it's valuable to me, and hopefully it's a good service to the people that listen to your to your uh, your broadcasts and podcasts and read uh, read your articles. You do a great job communicating. We appreciate that. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. You bet. Take care. Happy Thanksgiving.